Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. To crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Vanessa Galenia. And if you can imagine what it would sound like if somebody farted directly inside your head. (laughs) That and more. But first, I want to remind you about Namely, the all-in-one HR, payroll, and benefits software that employees love to use. You can clock in, schedule vacation, and more from your desk or on the go. Plus, use the social feed to share company news and give shout-outs for a job well done. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. Get a free demo by visiting Namely.com risk. That's Namely.com risk. Build a better workplace with Namely. Also, it's been a while since we've heard the musical version of the Stamps.com ad. Well, here's a fix to that, motherfuckers. Here's a fix to that. Take it from this redhead queer. You don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream. So use Stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use Stamps.com. Why don't you use Stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a four-week trial, and we know that's not confusing. <gasps> Plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus off for the digital scale. And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. You heard it, folks. Right now, you can use RISK as the offer code for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and that four-week trial. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the mic at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now, here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Capiozo and Mecco behind me now. Capiozo and Mecco. Yeah, that's that's who it is for crime. Did I stutter? I might have thought I did, but did you? I 
did you stop? I can't hear a goddamn word you're saying. What I'm getting at is did Capioso or Mecca stutter? And obviously, we're never gonna know because there's no fucking lyrics to this song. Think about it, jackass. All right, now that we've got all that cleared up, we're calling this week's episode Changes. Another episode of uh, stories that were told at our monthly show in New York and our monthly show in Los Angeles. Now, we're finally going to be back out on the road soon. We're going to Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Kansas, or Lawrence, Kansas, technically, uh, St. Louis, Atlanta, and we need you guys who live anywhere near any of those cities to be pitching us your stories. Remember, on our website, we have a live shows section where you can see what's coming next, and we have a submissions page that guides you through how to pitch us. So check that out, my motherfucking friends. Now, this is a typically wonderful risk episode with laughs and tears and fascinating stuff. It's loaded. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Paul Gilmartin, who is just such a remarkable guy. Every time he's done the show, it's just been a knockout. He has his own podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. I've been interviewed on that show before, and it gets deep. Gets It's fascinating. But before that, we're going to hear from Vanessa Galenia, her first time on the show. Vanessa is a writer, editor, storyteller based in Brooklyn, and it was a real treat to have her on the show for the very first time at our show at Caveat in New York City. Here she is now. This is Vanessa Galenia with a story we call About Face. My mother is like a Mexican Latina matriarch, and I love her, but she has a tendency to uh, give me passive aggressive gifts. So when uh, a, a couple years ago on my birthday, she got me a statue of St. Anthony, which in Catholicism is the saint that you pray to if you're a single woman looking for a man. <laughs> And another year, she put diet pills in my stocking stuffers. Um, and the worst thing about it was that they were like the CVS generic kind, right? Um, but she completely outdid herself when a couple years ago, she gives me this Christmas card, and in it there's a gift certificate for Botox. <laughs> and my mom has been trying to get me to do Botox for years. Like when I was 25, she's like, Vanessa, you should really come with me to this Botox party. And I don't know if you guys know what Botox parties are, but they're sort of like Tupperware parties. Um, but instead of sharing food and compliments, women share chemicals and insecurities. And um, I'm some, I, I grew up in Southern California, which as I'm sure you guys know, is like the land of gluten-free everything. And um, the reason like the Real Housewives exist. And like me and my mom, we, uh, like I'm the, like the gluten-free girl and my mom is like the Real Housewife, right? I go on green juice detoxes and wear a menstrual cup, uh, which I highly recommend if you're a woman. Um, and my mom is like the real housewife who'd be happy just, you know, driving around in an SUV with like Gucci leather seats. Um, at dinner, I, I drink kombucha. My mom drinks like Chardonnay out of a box. Um, and so I generally would have um, rejected her Botox offering, but uh, she caught me at a very susceptible moment in my life. So I just turned 30 and this huge wrinkle appeared overnight on my forehead. And it was like super deep that I literally thought it was only a matter of time before I started looking like a Sharpay. <laughs> and uh, I also, it was like around that time where I finally met a man in New York that I liked. So I started doing things one does when one has a new boyfriend. You know, like, I don't know, wearing matching bras and panties and shaving my legs. Um, and one thing you guys should know about the gift is that it was for Botox in Tijuana. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my mom, she assured me that Dr. Huliberto was like legit. And uh, when I looked him up online, he. Uh, <laughs> I found, what I found was a profile picture of a man completely decked out in a mariachi outfit, like sitting on a horse. 
and a post where he describes himself as a mommy makeover expert. Which, like, kind of makes sense since he made over my mommy. <laughs> so, um, on the day of the appointment, I drive down, like, the dusty Tijuana roads, and I get to his clinic, and I'm, you know, led to the back room, and Dr. Gilberto comes in, and he's like this fair skinned man and he has like stretched out like beautiful complexion and he administers a Botox and when he's done he goes can I make a suggestion um, I have good manners so I said sure and he brings a mirror up to my face and he goes uh, so your nose is slightly crooked your like lower cheeks are a little fat and your upper cheeks are starting to sink in he goes I recommend a nose job fillers and some cheek sculpting and <laughs> I laugh because it sounds a little ridiculous. Like, I feel like I've always had a completely agreeable face. Um, but then I'm like, Dr. Huberto's a real doctor. And, you know, I think he just diagnosed me as ugly. Um, <laughs> but I was like, no, he's going to make me look like Joan Rivers. And, you know, to be honest, like, I just had a hard time, like, buying into these, like, beauty standards that, like, continually oppress women. But then he, like... So he quoted me $3,500 for the nose job, the fillers, and the cheek sculpting. And at this point, I know nothing about plastic surgery, but I was like, that kind of sounds like a good deal. Um, <laughs> um, and so like, I hesitate, and he goes down to $3,200. Um, and he, he like, shows me these like, before and after pictures of like, all the women he worked on. And like, I have to admit, they look like gorgeous Mexican telenovela stars. And I start to wonder, like, can you really make me look like that? And then I was like, you know, like, this could be an investment in my future. Like, pretty people do get ahead, you know? And so I call my mom, like, just to get her opinion. And uh, she goes, uh, there's no such thing as natural beauty, Vanessa. Just get your face done. <laughs> and so I, I walk out of there with an appointment to, like, get some stuff done the next time in, I'm in California. But when I come back to New York, I keep having doubts, and I go get a second opinion. And Dr. Ratner is a triple certified plastic surgeon on Park Avenue, and he has excellent Yelp reviews. Um, and when I went to go see him, he advised me that uh, cosmetic surgery should only be handled by the best, and he quoted me $17,000 for nose job fillers and cheek sculpting. And I was like, man, like I knew Dr. Gilberto was giving me a deal, but this is like a crazy deal. <laughs> Um, but before I walk out of his office, he stops me and he goes, let me ask you something. Do you wake up every day and hate your nose? And I'm like, no. And he's like, then don't do it. It's not worth like the money, the pain, or the recovery time. And he's like, you know, there's so many women out there with awful noses and they're successful. Like, look at Sarah Jessica Parker. And I was like... <laughs> And I was like, he's right. I love SJP. And like, if she doesn't want a nose job, then neither do I. And I walked out of there just like, I was like, you know what? My nose is fine. You know, it like smells things, it works. It like gives me character. <laughs> um, so I walked out of there being like so confident, feeling so confident in my face. And, uh, and then I was just like, who am I kidding? If I can get five nose jobs for the price of one, like... I'm gonna do it. Um, essentially what I realized about myself is that like, I'm a woman who never passes up a good deal, just like my mom. Um, uh, there was just one problem. I didn't wanna tell my new boyfriend. Uh, and I had to tell him something because he was meeting me in California, so I had to like, be able to like, you know, explain away any bruises on my face. And a few words about my boyfriend. Uh, so he's a visual artist and his life is highly curated. Like this is a man who wears brooches and um, will only drink coffee out of handmade ceramic cups. Um, I swear to God he's not gay. Um, I met him on a feminist dating app. Um, and, and when we started dating, he kept introducing me to his friends and most of them were like these women and like not to judge at all, but they were women who didn't shave their armpits or like they refused to wear makeup. And so logically I thought like a girlfriend who gets cheap cosmetic procedures is just like not going to, you know, jive with his like world view or his aesthetic. Um, so I did what any girl would do. I lied. 
I told him that I developed this like strange allergy and had to get sinus removal surgery. <laughs> Which, like I've since discovered, is not technically a thing. <laughs> Um, but he bought it, and so, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I found myself back at Dr. Hilberto's office. And as I'm going into the operating room, I have one of those moments where you just, like, ask yourself, like, how did I get here? Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was, like, reluctantly getting Botox, and now I'm, you know, signing up for a nose job. And so I tell Dr. Hilberto, listen, I know you want to give me, like, the plastic surgery, like, prefix menu, but today, I'm going a la carte. Um, so I tell him, no nose job, but I will take, you know, the fillers and the cheek sculpting because I did drive all the way down here after all. And um, so he keeps telling me it's like a small procedure. He's like, poquito, poquito. And so um, I'm like really surprised when he starts the procedure by like stabbing my abdomen with um, a, a needle the size of a 12-inch ruler. And as he's like violently harvesting the fat out of me, he explains that doing a fat transfer is actually a more natural approach um, than synthetic fillers, which like gives me some level of comfort because you know I'm getting cosmetic surgery the organic way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what happens next is he gets this like syringe of my own fat and he injects it into my face. And if you can imagine what it would sound like if somebody farted directly inside your head. <laughs> It's basically what I heard. Um, but that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was like cheek sculpting. So everybody has these like pockets of fat on their cheeks. And so what the procedure is, is that they like make an incision inside your mouth and then just like go in there and like snip it and extract it. Um, and so he does one cheek and it's fine. And then he does the other cheek, but he can't find the pocket of fat. And so he goes like in there, like scraping around, you know? And um, like blood's coming out of my mouth and it like, it, there's like that metallic, like, you know, like taste to it. And then all of a sudden I can't feel my eye, like there's something happening with my eye. And I start freaking out and he like holds me back because I'm like squirming and he goes, stop moving. Do you want me to continue? And I'm like, um, I don't want to have a crooked nose and un uneven cheeks. Like, yes, just finish the job. <sighs> Um, when my mom picks me up, her reaction is like, ay Dios mío. <laughs> She's like, I hope you still have a boyfriend by the end of this. Um, because I do look like a monster. Uh, my cheeks are like lopsided, they have heart bumps all over them. And, uh, you know, one morning I wake up and I like look at myself in the mirror and I cry. Uh, I like tell myself this is like the worst decision you've ever made. And I completely uh, feel like I dodged the bullet with like the nose job because what I realized, like I did like a ton of research on this after the fact. Um, <laughs> but like nose jobs are really a function of what the, the doctor's like personal aesthetic is and like whatever is like trendy at the time. So that's why ski slope noses were like big in the 70s and why the upturned nose was like big in the 90s. <laughs> and like cool that you can like, you know, buy like a, a certain model of a nose, but who wants to get stuck with like an iPhone 4C equivalent on their face, right? <laughs> so then my boyfriend comes, I pick him up from the airport and like the swelling has like it's gone down but it's not it, it's like still there and i'm like a little nervous i'm like wearing big glasses and stuff um but he doesn't seem to notice because men never notice anything <laughs> that's until we get around to like you know getting busy and um because what i didn't think about because i didn't know it was going to happen was that he's going to see like the bruising where like the harvesting happened um <laughs> And when he sees it, he's like, whoa, like, what happened? And I cave in. I tell him about the near nose job and the fillers and the cheek sculpting. And to my relief, he doesn't judge me. He doesn't break up with me. He's actually really, really sweet about it. He says, like, babe, I, I think you're beautiful. Like, I don't understand why you did it. But, you know, I respect whatever it is you want to do with your body. And that's when I like silently patted myself on the back for like joining that feminist dating app that I met him on. <laughs> and then when the conversation came to an end, he goes, babe, you know what? At least you didn't get Botox. 
Thank you guys. I've had so much dent in my body, I might as well show it off. What all have you had done? I've had my hips and my ass done, I've had my pecs done, underneath my eyes done, and my brow done, my cheeks done, and my lips done, my chin done, and my jawline done, my six pack done. You got a six pack done my, with silicone? Girl! My shoulders, I've had. Your shoulders? My muscles are all silicone. And then I've had a little bit done in my bicep here. You're a silicone maniac! The only thing I haven't had done is my knees and my nose and my big toe. I'm like walking Tupperware, girl. I'm part of the Glad family of products. <laughs> <laughs> How do I feel about queens who have plastic surgery? Jealous. Uh, I want to talk about my dad. My dad was always a mystery to me. There was something about him that I couldn't ever really put my finger on, and he was a really quiet guy. He was really difficult to get to know, and I remember being like six or seven years old and feeling like he is battling something, and I don't know what it is. He was just always kind of trapped in his head. He wasn't a loud person. He was never a violent person. My friends would come over and they would say, why is your dad mad at me? And I would say, that's just his face. <laughs> there was just a, there was an intensity to him that I didn't understand. Not that I didn't have good moments with him. When I was little, one of my favorite moments was he would carry me to bed every night. And we had this ritual. He would carry me up the stairs and when the ceiling got low at one point, I would always touch the ceiling. And we did it so much that there was like handprints on it. And years later, I remember looking at those handprints and thinking, God, there aren't many memories that I have of my dad that are warm. Uh, he loved to swim. <laughs> People said, you have to eulogize your dad. It would be like, he wrote a good check and he liked to swim. Uh, my dad had such trouble being present and you know there's nothing kids want more than their parents undivided attention you can give them gifts and all that other shit but I don't know there's just something the more people I talk to the moments that people remember from childhood the most are the ones where they have their parents undivided attention or they feel seen in some way and there was always just kind of a feeling that I didn't feel seen, but swimming, my dad loved the water. He taught us, and my brother and I, how to dive, and it seemed like the one place in the world where he would kind of let loose and, uh, and be present. Uh, and the other thing that I, where I felt seen was in, when I played sports. The only time I ever in my life saw him express joy was when I pitched a winning game in Little League against an undefeated team. And he came leaping out of the dugout like a, like a leprechaun. I don't even know how to describe it, but it was his knees were going like abnormally high and he, was and he has no sense of rhythm and his arms were flapping up and down. And I remember going from like sheer joy at winning to sheer embarrassment and my dad running towards me. But he picked me up and he held me and... Um, it was such a bizarre weekend because then we got in the car almost immediately and we went to our family vacation, uh, which that year was at the Ozarks. And my, I remember my brother and I were at the pool. My dad comes up and he's, he seems angry. But then again, that's my dad's face. And he says, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, fuck, what did I do? And he sits me down and he says, Paul... When a man loves a woman, he puts his penis inside her vagina. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what did I do? <laughs> and after about a minute, I realized, oh my God, he's giving me the talk. But he didn't, he didn't, he just, if he could have typed it up and gave it to me, he would have done that. And then he would have signed it, Dad. 
you know, had his secretary type. Because he was kind of like Don Draper. He was an insurance executive. He, he was very successful. He had a big corner office with a bar and a couch. And I thought the bar was so cool. I didn't know he was an alcoholic. But um, he, I never saw him slur. But he was probably the most high-functioning alcoholic I've ever, I've ever known. <laughs> Help is on the way. <laughs> You're at that cute stage where it's funny. <laughs> I was at that stage. Um, but like my dad's favorite thing to do was uh, to have people around him, but leaving him alone. And that's, that's kind of who, who I uh, turned into as much as, uh, as much as I hate to admit it. But I didn't know my dad was an alcoholic until he was 18. I was 18 years old and I was leaving for college and my mom said, you should keep an eye on your drinking. Alcoholism runs in the family. And I was like, what? Who? Yeah. Turns out every male in my family tree uh, is an alcoholic. And it explained a little bit of why he was so trapped in his head and so distant. Um, and then in 1993, I was still living back in Chicago, um, living on my own, but back in the same town as my family. And uh, I got a phone call that my dad had attempted suicide. He was in New York on business and he hadn't shown up for a meeting and they broke down his uh, hotel room door and he was in the bathtub drunk and he had opened his wrists. And, um, and I remember being surprised but not being surprised and finally going, oh, that explains it. That's what he was battling. He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to be alive anymore. And he has been trying to find a way to survive all his life. He's been trying to find something to enable him to feel. He had a terrible childhood. His father was also an alcoholic. The gift that keeps on giving. And... Um, his father was emotionally sadistic, uh, just a straight-up asshole. And I know my dad had demons in, in his head. And <laughs> he was committed to Bellevue, which I'm sure you all know is like the casting central version of a psych unit uh, in New York. And we weren't able to get a hold of him, even though we would call. They said, well, the only phone is a payphone in the hallway. So for three days, crazy people are answering the phone. Uh, and we're trying to say, is William Gilmartin there? And, you know, the government is spying on you. And not to minimize people's uh, mental health experiences, but fuck them. Anyway, um, <laughs> trying to talk to my dad. Finally, after three days, I get him on the phone and I say, Dad, it's Paul. How are you? And he goes, oh, fine. That made me more sad than him trying to take his life because I thought, what's it going to take for him to ask for help? You know, he's the type of person who, he fell and broke his ribs one time and laid in his bed, he was living alone for three days, rather than pick up the phone and ask somebody for help. But thankfully, the psychiatrist at that psych hospital said, I will only release you if you get directly on a plane, fly directly to Chicago, your family meets you at the airport and they drive you to rehab. And so we did um, on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and I didn't really feel much. I, I battled numbness most of my life, I suppose, as a way to, to deal with things that aren't fun. But we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it in the car. Uh, we didn't talk about it after we dropped him off. And my dad stayed sober for a while. Um, and before he passed away um, from cancer, I began to try to meet him where he was, as they say, instead of trying to get him to be the dad that I needed. I had an epiphany one day. I was trying to get some praise from him. I had started uh, doing a radio show and I was producing sketches every week and it involved elaborate recordings and editing and, and I played it for him and he didn't say anything. And I said, so what did you think? And he was silent. He said, 
I didn't think it was your best work. And I remember feeling crushed and then looking out the window and thinking, what the fuck am I doing? This guy is not capable of giving you what you need. He's been disappointing you in some way or another your whole life. But I wanted to believe that when I was 16 years old, I got busted before uh, the first day of school my sophomore year for smoking uh, weed. And my dad said, he was very forgiving. He said, uh, this is the saddest day of my life except for the day my father died. (laughs) His father who he hated. But um, I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. You quit smoking cigarettes and I'll quit smoking pot. And he thought about it and he said, okay. And um, we were about six months into it and I was going to a UFO concert with my friends and they uh, passed me a joint and I said, no. And they said, oh, you're still doing that thing with your dad? I said, yeah. And my, and my neighbor laughed. I go, what? He goes, dude, your dad's been on the side of the house smoking cigarettes every night after dinner. And I was like, give me that joint, give me that beer. And it was on, man. It was like something in me almost kind of broke in that moment of like trusting, trusting people. And I got so drunk at that concert that I apparently blacked out after peeing in the aisle behind me. And uh, when I came to, the band still wasn't on yet. And I was like, when the fuck are they going to come on? And my friend goes, dude, they just got off the stage. So I missed the entire concert. And that was uh, sadly kind of the path that I was beginning to head down when I got sober. Um, But fortunately, it was a couple of years before my dad passed away, and I got to have some nice moments with him. Um, When his cancer was terminal, I was, got a moment alone with him in the hospital, and I'd begun to accept who he was. And I said, um, I just want to thank you for the things that you gave me in life. You modeled how to live below your means, to be financially responsible, I think there was something else, but I can't remember what it was. And he said, um, I used to worry about you, but I don't worry about you anymore. And we told each other that, uh, you know, I love you. And, but I did, when my dad passed away shortly after, I, I didn't cry. And they say that, you know, grief kind of has its own schedule. And it was about three months after he died, I was driving in my car, and I went to call him to ask him who he thought was going to win the NCAA basketball championship, which I would do every year, because sports was one of the things we could connect through. And I picked up the phone, and I realized I I will never be able to call him and talk about that again. And that's when I broke down, and I cried. And I got to a place where I'm okay with the fact that our relationship was what it was um, because I realized his father tortured him mentally and emotionally. And what my dad was doing in his head was he was probably trying to save me from the demons that he had in his head. And I was grateful for that because I feel like that's, that's the best that he could do and, and I'm okay with that. Thank you. Yeah. 
This is Risk. This is Jackson Brown behind me now. You never know who's going to show up on Risk. And we just heard from Paul Gilmartin. Check him out on Twitter at MentalPod. That's because his fantastic podcast is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. I highly recommend it. Before that, we heard a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now it is time for me to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon patron who has given us $25 or more per month. And that is Samuel Clitty. (laughs) I mean, you know, what more can I say? Samuel Clitty likes us. Even my grandma used to say, there's no Clitty like Samuel Clitty of the Ripley, Mississippi, inner city Clitties. I mean, he's witty. I wouldn't doubt that he's on some sort of steering committee. And man, what titties. (laughs) All right, enough. Thank you, Samuel Clitty and everyone who gives to us at patreon.com slash risk and there's another way you can help us you can go to the riskbook.com and pre-order your copy of the risk book holy fucking shit we finally got through the final edit this past weekend it was an epic epic slog but man are those stories good the riskbook.com pre-order yours we need as many pre-orders as we can possibly possibly manage in order to maybe be on the new york times bestseller list by the time it comes out in july so have your friends pre-order pre-order copies for your friends and send us proof that you did so that you will be eligible for maybe a prize or being mentioned at the end of the show that's the riskbook.com and email your proof of purchase to kevin at riskdeathshow.com now we're about to get to our last story but before we get to that i wanted to let you know that if you live in california or nevada it's an exciting time right now MedMen is helping to redefine the cannabis industry and empower people to exercise their right to purchase cannabis MedMen is bringing a premium and traditional shopping experience to the cannabis space all of the MedMen stores feature a wide range of products with knowledge and approachable staff to ensure you find what's best for you their shops are open for both recreational and medical cannabis users anyone over 21 with a valid id is welcome and medmen is committed to providing the highest in quality and safety so you won't have to worry about what you're buying i've seen the photographs of these stores the interiors of these stores wow they're gorgeous so be empowered to exercise your right to buy cannabis check out one of their eight retail locations throughout los angeles Orange County, San Diego, and Las Vegas, or go to medmen.com to find your nearest store. That's M-E-D-M-E-N.com. Plus, exclusively for Risk listeners, visit MedMen and tell them you heard about them on the Risk podcast for $10 off your order. Limit one per customer. Terms and conditions may apply. Check out MedMen today. Our final story is remarkable and it comes from a remarkable human being jezebel express if you go to jezebelexpress.com look her up she is amazing she's a burlesque performer she's also a burlesque teacher she teaches at the new york school of burlesque and you know she was telling this story she had never done storytelling before but she was telling this story to some friends and they said to her holy shit, you should share that on risk. So we started conversing with her a few months ago and man, are we grateful (laughs) that her friends encouraged her to do that. You do the same. When you hear people tell remarkable stories, you have them get in contact with us like Jezebel's friends did. Here she is now. This is Jezebel Express at the Risk Live Show at Caveat in New York City with a story we call Making brownies.
And they're sweet and, well, they're brown, I guess. And uh, they come in a box. It's not right. They come in a box. That can't be right. No, no, they do. They do. They come in a box. And then you mix it with wet stuff. And then you put it in the hot thing, the big hot thing, not the little one, the, not, the, not the microwave, the other one, the big one, the, uh, the oven. You put it in the oven. And then it gets hard. And you take it out. And that's when you make it into little squares. And then you eat them. And they're delicious. I'm gonna make some brownies. I am 30 years old. I'm standing in the middle of my kitchen on the Lower East Side, and I've just decided that I'm going to make brownies to celebrate my three-month anniversary of having survived a stroke. Now, I've just remembered what brownies are, and this is what my life is like now. It's as though the library of my memory has caved in on itself, and it's my job to pick through the rubble to find the facts that I need to get through my day. So I've just remembered brownies, and every day I remember new things. And there's one memory that I wish I could shake, but I can't. It lives in me between my heart and my throat, and that's the memory of what happened three months ago when everything changed. I'm standing in front of my bathroom sink and I'm scrubbing my fingernails with a small bristled brush. And I don't feel good, it's early in the morning and I haven't had enough sleep. And I look in the mirror and I'm kind of shocked at how bad I look. I'm a weird shade of pale and it's like my face is uneven and I'm blurry. So I drop the brush and I turn on the faucet so that I can splash water onto my face. Or that's what I mean to do. But when I look down at my hands, they're stuck in that position, my right hand a claw over the left and the left still holding the brush. And it's like there's been a glitch in the matrix. So I think it again, drop the brush and nothing happens. And I try one more time insistently, drop the brush. And as I look down, it's like my understanding of the world expands and then contracts and explodes because I realize that I have lost control of my arms and I don't know how to be a human being if my body doesn't do what I tell it to. And I think that I might be stuck here standing over my sink holding this brush for the rest of my life. So I think it one more time, drop the brush. And nothing happens for a few seconds. And then my arm flails out spastically to the side and the brush clatters to the floor. And everything starts getting snowy around the edges and I realize that I'm going to pass out. And I feel the cold tile underneath my feet and I think I've got to get somewhere softer. So I walk to my bed, or I try to walk to my bed, but the left side of my body is paralyzed. <laughs> so I'm having a lot of trouble and I use the floor and the counter and my table and the wall and eventually I get to the bed and I flop over the bed and I reach for my phone, but my hand slides off the glass. And I realized that I don't have the motor function I need to call 911. <laughs> Did I mention that I was naked? Yeah, I would just gotten out of the shower when all of this happened. So I was laying over my bed completely naked and I realized that I live alone and I'm single and nobody is coming and I can't call for help and I'm dying one of those New York deaths. The kind that seemed like it would be impossible to die in this day and age, right? With everyone so connected. But I am, because I feel that I'm dying. I can feel it shutting down. And I imagine a firefighter, and I imagine their faces when they burst through my door after the neighbors call and complain about the smell two weeks later, and they find my bloated, naked, rat-eaten body with my hand two inches from the phone. And I think about that, and it, it seems so unfair, because that wasn't how I meant to go. But everything about this seems unfair, because I didn't do any of the things that I wanted to do with my life. I didn't make good art, nothing that I was really proud of, and I didn't travel. I never saw anything, because it was too uncomfortable for me to go someplace where I didn't speak the language. I never got married. 
I mean, I don't even want to get married. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing you think about when you're dying, and you do know that you're dying. It's very, very clear. You can feel it shutting down. Like you're in a giant theater, and the lights are shutting off from the back of the room, and soon you'll be sitting in the dark, but they're just going, boom, boom, boom. And you know that soon you're gonna be in pitch black, and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. And that realization makes me gasp. <gasps> And then I realized something. I realized that I'm still breathing. And if I'm breathing, I'm not dead. So if I don't want to die, all I have to do is keep breathing. And I push all of the thoughts of rats and firefighters out of my head. And that is what I concentrate all of my energy on. Single-minded, one focus. I breathe in. And then I breathe out. And then I do it again. I breathe in. And then I breathe out. And this goes on for some time. And about two hours later, I realize that I can move my hands. And then I realize that I can move my feet and that I can stand up. So I go to my doctor. I should have called an ambulance, but I just acquired a brain injury and I wasn't thinking very clearly. So I, I go to my doctor, even though I don't really understand how taxi cabs work, I know that I have to get into the yellow car and they will take me somewhere, but I don't know why he's yelling at me and I don't know why he's taken my purse and taken the green things out of it and thrown the purse back at me and told me to get out of the car. But I grab my purse and I get out of the car and I go into the doctor's office and it is white and clean and organized and I think that she will tell me what is wrong. She will be able to fix this. And I stand in front of the doctor and there are tears streaming down my face and I'm listing slightly side to side and I can't remember my middle name but I can remember the name of the current president and she tells me that I'm having a panic attack and gives me a clonopin and she sends me home. So I go back to my house and I take the clonopin and I hope with everything in my being that when I wake up in a couple of hours, this will all seem like a bad dream. But I don't wake up in a couple of hours. I'm in and out of consciousness and pain and disorientation. And when I finally stumble from my bed consciously five days later, I go to the bathroom and on my way there I notice that there's a menu on my fridge written in Chinese. And I think that's weird. And even as I'm thinking it, I see English language letters appearing from it. There's an A and there's a C. And I realize that the menu isn't in Chinese, it's in English. I just can't read. So after that, there are a lot of doctors and a lot of needles and machines that zap me and machines that shudder from side to side. And after three months, we do know some things. We know that I've had a stroke in the prefrontal cortex of my brain, possibly a series of strokes, what they call a shower of embolism, which is a pretty fucking festive term for something that might kill you if you ask me. <laughs> we know that there's a big dead spot in my brain the size of a peanut M&M, but like a big peanut M&M, like one of those mutant ones that has two peanuts in it. <laughs> yeah, it's like that size. And we know that my ability to function in my day-to-day -day life has been severely diminished. I've lost most of the function in my left hand and my left foot. I don't understand important concepts like time. And my short-term memory is so bad that if you ask me a question, I'll be able to reply to it, but I might not remember what your question was by the time I'm done talking. All of that is troubling, but what's more troubling is the things that we don't know. We don't know what causes a stroke, and we don't know if I'm going to have another one. Three months seems like a long time without a diagnosis, but it actually takes us about 18 months to figure out that I have a blood clotting disorder that probably led to the stroke. And while we're three months out from the stroke, no one can tell me what caused it, and no one can tell me with any certainty whether or not I'll have another one. So at this point, I'm celebrating days and weeks and months because I'm not sure if I have years. And for this three-month anniversary, I've decided to make these brownies, and God damn it, I'm gonna do it. Even though I'm not really supposed to be making brownies, after an incident a few months ago when I reached out and grabbed a hot pan with my bare hand because I didn't understand that it would hurt me, my family and friends have decided that possibly I shouldn't cook until we've got the brain thing a little bit more under control. So I don't tell anyone that I'm making brownies. And it's partly because I don't want people to tell me that I can't, but I also don't want them to know if I fail. And I recognize that there is a chance that I will fail. So I start for the first and the 50th time to make brownies. 
And there is so much I love about making brownies. I love the puff of powder that rises when you upend the mix into a bowl. And I love the white plastic packet of factory caramel goo. And I love the two perfect eggs that I hold in my hand for just a second before cracking them. I love the sandy taste of the batter on my tongue, the badness of eating something raw. And I love what the brownies show me that I can do when I bend over with a paper towel to wipe up a drip of batter that's fallen on the floor. It is a miracle because a month ago I dropped a 500 bottle of Tylenol on the floor and I just sat down in the middle of the mess and cried because I knew that there was no way I could pick up all those pills. And I love that I'm learning how to work with this brain, that I know that my sense of time is pretty iffy, so I set three different timers and I put them all around my house to make sure that I don't accidentally cook the brownies for 25 hours instead of 25 minutes and burn the whole place down. And I take an oven mitt and I put it on top of my stove so that I'll remember that when I need to take the brownies out of the oven, I'll be able to do that. And I love that while the brownies are cooking, I can tell the difference between the sickly sweet egg smell of something raw and that dry cooked smell, that dry baked smell of something that's done. And even though I didn't know what brownies were this morning, I know that they're done while I'm in the other room. There's this back burner part of my brain that still has everything in there and it feels so good. And when I take the brownies out of the oven, I do not burn myself. And I look at them and they are exactly the size and the shape that they're meant to be and I let them cool and I cut out a perfect square and I bring it to my mouth and I take a bite and they are perfect. They are exactly what I meant to do. And there is so much I can't do three months after my stroke. I can't ride the subway or read a map or order a sandwich because I don't know what a pickle is. <laughs> There is so much I can do, but I have done this one thing. And I look down at this beautiful brownie with a crescent shape from my teeth carved out of it, and I realize that for the first time since I had the stroke, I believe that maybe, someday, everything might be okay. And I think about those eggs the way that I hesitated before cracking them, but then I did, I broke them, and they became something new, part of something whole, something different, not better or worse, but something different, and they were still useful and important, and it was okay that they were broken, and there's a feeling for it, and I can feel it rising in me, and I don't know what the feeling is that I have from making these brownies, and I can't remember the word, but I realized that today, I made something that was whole and perfect, even if I'm not, and suddenly, the word comes to me, and it's exactly the right word, and I know what it is, and I know that there are gonna be hard days ahead, but here, today, I did just the thing that I meant to do, and I hold the word close to me, and I know that I've got this one back, and that I'm gonna carry it through the rest of the hard days, and the brownies are perfect, and the word is hope. Sunshiny day 
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Hot House Flowers behind me now. We just heard from Jezebel Express. Be sure to look her up at JezebelExpress.com. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing live next. But first, I want to remind you about Namely, the all-in-one HR, payroll, and benefits software that employees love to use. You can clock in, schedule vacation, and more from your desk or on the go. Plus, use the social feed to share company news and give shout-outs for a job well done. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. Get a free demo by visiting Namely.com risk. That's Namely.com risk. Build a better workplace with Namely. Okay, here are lots of upcoming shows that you can see or maybe even be in. On April 7th, we are at NYC Podfest at the Abrams Arts Center. Now, Francesca Ramsey is going to be in that show. Melina Williams-Hawes, Michelle Carlo, Gaster Almonte, and Elna Baker. You are not going to want to miss that one on April 7th. On April 21st, we're back in L.A. at the Bootleg Theater. On April 21st, we are also in Pittsburgh. On April 21st, we're in Pittsburgh at the Rex Theater. I think we are still taking some pitches for that show. And the themes that night are embarrassing or misfits or trapped. On April 26th, we're back at Caveat in New York City. And on May 17th, we're in Kansas City, Kansas. Technically, we're in Lawrence, Kansas on May 17th at the Granada Theater. The themes that night are discussed or trapped or coincidence. And you can pitch us if you go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Same thing if you are in St. Louis, because on May 18th, on May 18th, we're in St. Louis at Del Mar Hall. You can pitch us. The optional themes are We Were Young or Abusive or Guilty Pleasure. So pitch us, St. Louis folks, for that show that night on May 25th. We are in Atlanta, May 25th in Atlanta at the Masquerade. We're on the Heaven stage. It's a three-stage venue there. So May 25th, Atlanta. Optional themes that night are plans and schemes, love, or rebellion. So pitch us. Go to riskdashshow.com slash submissions. There's videos. There's audio. There's all sorts of written tips there for how to pitch us, and you might be a part of of one of those upcoming tour dates. If you like what we do, there are so many ways to support us. You can go to patreon.com risk and become a patron of ours and get all sorts of extra bonus content. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. You can leave us a positive review on iTunes. That's super helpful. And of course, you can go to theriskbook.com pre-order the Risk book and uh, email me at kevin at show.com to show that you did pre-order the book and uh, you might be eligible for a prize. Finally, if you're interested in storytelling training, we have our own school at thestorystudio.org. Whether you want one-on-one training, you want training for the stage, or corporate. We do corporate trainings, you know, with the staffs of all kinds of businesses. That is at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Jesse Parker and the Hot Sauce. 